back when I was a teacher, I had the opportunity um, to go on a year 11 outdoor education uh, camp. That was a week in the Grampians uh, with a dozen, well there was 30 or so year 11s, but there was three different groups. And uh, so we spent a week wandering through beautiful Grampians, carrying all our own gear. Um, it was a great time. Started to get a little bit weary midway during the week, um, especially on the Wednesday when you thought your pack was getting a bit lighter, only to realise you had to fill up with water again. Uh, it's amazing what a couple of extra kilos in the pack does all of a sudden. And one student was really struggling with her pack and uh, slowing down, and we all had to slow down. It was a group exercise. Uh, she was really battling. And we said to the student, so what are we going to do? We, uh, we need to work this out. We've got to get to camp by dark and work out how we're going to get there. And could have left her there. No, that wasn't. Could have left her pack there. And then one big lad, as a basketballer from memory, he said, I'll take it. And he went to her and grabbed her pack from her, took off a few things from the outside and shared some stuff with the rest of the group. And he stuck her pack on his front and his pack on his back doubled his burden, and off we struggled. And he was sweating profusely by the end of that day and the next, but we got there. He carried her burden for her, took it and carried it for her. When Jesus says to us, come to me, all who are weary, all who labour, and a heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's a great promise, isn't it? Beautiful promise. But Jesus doesn't just remove the burden from our back and leave it there. He picks it up. He carries it. The easy yoke and light burden that he gives us invites us to take and give rest for our souls only comes to us because he has taken the heavy burden of our sin and our shame and our guilt and the wrath of God that goes with that and he bears it in his body on the tree so that we might be able to keep on in life and faith and joy and find rest for our souls This morning, as I've said, we return to Matthew's Gospel. If you've got Matthew 8 open there, that'd be really helpful for us this morning. We're picking up where we left off back in July. We've broken up um, these chapters with that series, Glorious Humanity. And in hindsight, I sort of thought, oh, maybe we should have done that in a couple of weeks' time because those three chapters, Matthew 5, 6 and 7, what we know is the Sermon on the Mount, as good and wonderful as they are, Jesus' teaching and preaching regarding the Kingdom of Heaven, and teaching the way of life for us as his kingdom children, a very countercultural way of life, as we heard. At the end of that sermon, we read at the end of chapter 7, verse 28, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. But what then takes place in chapter 8 onwards is not a new section. It's connected with what's just been happening. He's been teaching with authority as he sat there at the Sermon on the Mount and proclaimed to the people who had gathered. And what he's doing in chapters 8 and 9, as we'll see in the next few weeks, 
is actually a demonstration of that same authority in practice. Matthew draws our attention to it, the teaching with authority and the practical outworking or demonstration of that authority. And so even though we've had a break in our series between the Sermon on the Mount and these chapters, there's no break in Matthew's Gospel. And just to help us see why that's the case or how that is the case, turn back to chapter 4. It's good to bring your Bibles along. That's what we're hearing from. Make sure it's not my words, but actually God's words we're reading and hearing. Back in chapter 4, verse 23, Matthew gives us this summary of what Jesus is doing. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction from among the people. That's what he's doing. And then he goes and teaches a sermon on the mount. So we get the preaching and the teaching. But now in chapters 8 to 9, we get the healing of every affliction. Can you see how it's all bundled together? And at the very end of chapter, or near the end of chapter 9, after these healings, we're going to see there's actually three groups of healings in chapters 8 and 9. Have a listen to chapter 9, 35. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Hang on, didn't we just read that? It's word for word the same as chapter 4, verse 23. It's what we call an inclusio, it's bookends. Matthew is telling us in between these two verses is the preaching, teaching and healing. It's all one ministry of Christ. And so with the same authority that he's taught about the kingdom of God, he comes and brings in practice that kingdom as he speaks to the people and heals them. It's all bundled together. The next verse is a transition. Again, he saw the crowd, same as he did back in chapter 4, and had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's into the next section. That's the start of the next section. But what I've just said about Jesus' teaching with authority and then that practical demonstration of it should speak to us here today as a church which holds the preaching and teaching of God's word in high regard. And so we should. And my prayer every week is that as we hear God's word, it would come to us with power. Because any teaching on its own is not enough. Our faith is not just in the teaching of Jesus or in the preaching of the Bible, but actually in Jesus himself, in Christ himself, in the power of God. It's not our agreement to the gospel doctrines that saves us, is it? The gospel itself is the power of God for salvation. Christ. And so our prayer is that he comes to us through the word with power. As Paul says in Corinthians, he didn't come, he didn't come wanting with lofty speech or wisdom. He wanted to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. When I was with you, he says, in weakness, in fear, in much trembling, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, you know me well enough, I hope, that what I'm saying here is not about let's have a whole lot of spiritual hoo-ha and hype taking place. But I'm simply saying the truth that where the word of God is preached, unless it's accompanied with the spirit of God, there's no power. There's no transformative power for our lives. There's no saving power in that word. 
And so, Lord, have mercy on us if we've been content with just a teaching ministry or simply a good word, a good sermon and dismiss the need, our need, for the power of God that comes with that word by the Spirit in the Gospel. Chapters 8 to 9 contain three groups of healings. We're going to look at the first of three, as um, uh, Martin mentioned for us. Three groups of healings. There's another set of three, and then a set of three or four near the end. And in between those are a couple of little sections about calling and discipleship. Jesus has preached the Sermon on the Mount. He's astonished the crowds with the authority of his teaching. He's now coming down the mountain, and great crowds are following him. Can you remember your time in school, or maybe you're still at school, and you've got this burning question you want to ask the teacher, but you're a little bit nervous because you don't want to sound like this dumb student, and they'll, oh, there's no such thing as a silly question, but you don't want to be the silly one to ask it. But then someone else puts their hand up, and they ask the very question that most of the class want the answer to anyway. Well, there's one fella in this crowd who's brave enough, humble enough, actually, to come before Jesus and ask the first question. A leper, a man suffering leprosy. And not long after, a Roman centurion who has a servant lying at home, paralysed, suffering terribly. And thirdly, not someone coming to Jesus, but Jesus entering Peter's house sees his mother-in-law. And he heals her. Three people, three individuals, three healings, and then a whole lot more after he's healed Peter's mother-in-law because they all come to him. But each of those people, when you look at it, in their own culture, in the tradition of the day, they were outcasts, outsiders, second-class citizens they would have been treated as. Jesus touches the leper, a man who is ritually unclean because of the disease that he has. He commends a Gentile, a Roman centurion, praising and rewarding the faith of a man who would have been considered an outcast generally and maybe even a potential enemy, given the Roman rule of the day. Although if we take Luke's telling of this narrative, this one, this man, he's actually a man of good repute. He supported the Jews. And he shows compassion for a woman who in the day would have been treated as a second-class citizen patriarchal society he reaches out to her touches her physically with his hands but also emotionally with his heart because one thing we see here in these healings in chapters 8 and 9 is not just that Jesus has the power and authority to heal these people but he has compassion for them he has a heart for them power on its own is not always a good thing is it It can be quite terrifying, raw power in action from a person or from creation, nature. But Jesus has all the power of God at his disposal, but he has a heart of compassion, a sympathy and a tenderness to go with that power and authority. And in each of these cases, Jesus casts aside the the cultural taboos. He really is the countercultural, this is the countercultural kingdom coming into the world, isn't it? in both his teaching and his works. 
and he has compassion on those who are usually shunned by the society around them. And then we hear after he's healed Peter's mother-in-law that many more at evening, it's probably been the Sabbath if we connect the other gospel accounts, many more come at the end of the day, Sabbath's over, they now come, they carry those that cannot be brought, cannot come themselves. And he heals them all. Not just with power, but with a heart filled with compassion. Which is what I think the very first healing here, the man with leprosy, draws out. Would have taken great courage for him to step forward, wouldn't it? Especially in front of others. Not just courage that we see here though, there's great faith in this man. And not just faith, but humility and reverence. Behold, a leper came to him, to Jesus, and he kneels before him. Sort of gloss over that bit. He kneels before him. Leprosy in the Bible would have covered a whole, it covers a whole myriad of um, skin and fungal diseases. You can read Leviticus 13 and 14 if you want all the, the details. The major issue is not so much the disease, but that having a, such a disease made a person spiritually unclean. They couldn't go to the synagogue. They couldn't go to the temple. They couldn't draw near to the throne of God and others could not draw near to them until that skin disease had gone, until they'd been cleansed and they needed to be assessed by a priest, the proof, that's the commandment of Moses. And until they were clean, they went around and had to cry out, unclean, unclean, making sure no one else went near them, leaving them ostracised, alone, untouchable. We've witnessed a little something of that, haven't we? Just a taste of it during the pandemic. Wearing masks and if anyone sneezed in the room, it'd sort of all move away an extra foot. You ever feel that? Just that natural inclination to imagine a hundred, a thousand times that feeling. And for another person to come in contact with a leper to touch them would have made that person unclean. They would have had to wait a week or more before they could then worship, go to worship. So what's Jesus here? Not just speaking to this man, but actually stretching out his hand and touching him. He probably hasn't been touched for years. You know the power of physical touch? But Jesus is not made unclean by the leper. The lepers made clean by Jesus. But as we'll see in a while, there's something more than just him being made clean. And I've already alluded to it earlier on. We'll see that in a moment. But as I said, there's the heart of Christ here as well. This man has amazing faith. He doesn't say, Lord, if you if you can, could you make me clean? He says, if you will, you can make me clean. He's got no doubt that Jesus can do it. Will he do it? Jesus makes it clear he does. I will, I am willing. Be clean. And then we have the centurion. 
obvious power at work here. Jesus doesn't even need to go to the place to heal his servant. He does it from a distance. But I don't think Matthew is actually trying to draw us, draw our attention to the power of Jesus in doing this, what he does here. What he's actually highlighting, a bit like the leper, is the faith of this man. Here is a man with faith that Jesus could not find in all Israel, even among his own people. After all he does in his life, in his ministry, in all Israel so far, Jesus has not seen faith like he does in this man. And Jesus has this little word of warning and judgment, really, doesn't he? Many from the east and west will come and they will recline at table in heaven, in the kingdom. They will be brought into the fold. While many of the sons of the kingdom, Israel, they will be thrown into outer darkness. Centurion is a great testimony to the faith that's required for us to come into the kingdom of heaven. But he too shows great humility here as he acknowledges, Jesus, I'm not worthy for you to come to my home. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. He knows something about who Jesus is. And he demonstrates that all the more when he says, I too am a man under authority. Now you think he's a Roman centurion, he's got a hundred soldiers under his power and authority, his, his place. But he says, I too am a man under authority, not a man in authority. In other words, he knows that Jesus, with all the power that he's seen in him and heard in his teaching, that power only comes from someone above him. Jesus is a man under authority. And it's only because of that that he has the power and authority to do what he's doing. Now, whether he knows or wonders or believes whether Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, he certainly believes that he is a man who's come from God. And the power that he exercises is a power and authority of God. And he knows how true authority works. I too am a man under authority, verse 9, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come. And to my servant I say, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled at the faith of this man. And he says to the centurion, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Now let's just pause for a minute after those first two. Because I don't know about you, but I can't hear those two stories without thinking about people here in our own church family. Some of us here, ourselves or our loved ones, sitting at home even today, longing to be healed. We might ask the question, is Jesus able to heal today? And sometimes I think even the harder question or the answer to accept, if we know and trust he's able, is he willing? Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Why wouldn't he will? Why wouldn't he want to? 
as he does here for the centurion and for the leper. How good would it be if one Sunday Ed went home and Narelle was healed? It'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? It'd be glorious. Wayne, Karen, the Bells, others. It really would be wonderful and I think it would be life-giving to us to see the power of God at work amongst us in that way. But I actually wonder if that's not necessarily the right thing to be thinking or that what Matthew wants us to be thinking here. I wonder if the right question is how good would it be if there was faith here and in our homes like the faith of the centurion? Because Jesus says this faith is as rare as hen's teeth. And by that I'm not saying if we had more faith we'd have more healing. I'm not saying that. But Matthew's point here is not to draw us just to the healing but to the faith and to the heart of Christ. Because what I'm actually suggesting is not more faith, more healing but actually something better. That if, as we know Christ and know the one who sent him, God the Father, that we have the sure hope of a resurrection. That we know if not this day, there is a healing that will come for us all on that last day when we're raised and glorified with Christ. Because we may not be healed today. Unless the Lord appears beforehand, though, we will all die. He hasn't borne our old age in his body on the tree. But he's borne the fear and the guilt and the shame and the worry that comes. Lord, am I getting this? Am I sick because of something I've done? Have I done something that my kids are now suffering? No, all the condemnation is gone. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't need to think that way. Christ has secured us by grace through faith and he's preparing us, as Paul says, even as our outer selves are wasting away. He is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. He hasn't promised to heal everyone in this life. He does here, it says Jesus healed them all. But then there's other occasions he goes and heals the man by the pool, Remember? When the water stirred, if you got in the pool quickly, there were lots of people around the pool that day. Only one was healed. Now, for some, that may not satisfy us. You might see that as a cop-out. Ray, why don't you trust that God will fix everything now? But I don't see it as a cop-out. I actually see that as the way of faith and hope, the sure hope of Christ. And knowing and trusting that God is good and his love endures forever. That his works are perfect and all his ways are just. That he does all things well. Even if I struggle with his will. The third one here, Jesus enters Peter's house and sees his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. And we might think, oh, that's little compared to leprosy or peril. Now, fever in those days, there was no Panadol, no Nurofen, no antibiotics. 
A lot of people died just from having a fever. But he touches her and she's healed and she serves them. And as I said, that home then becomes a little pop-up clinic as many come that night to be healed of their sicknesses. And then in verse 17, and I've wrestled with this all week, and I want you to wrestle with it this week. Matthew says this, referring to the healings that he's just described, this was to fulfil what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Matthew's quoting from Isaiah 53. He's translating it literally from the Hebrew. Surely, Isaiah declares, we read, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Matthew's quoting probably from the Masoretic text and says he's taken our illnesses and borne our diseases. How are we meant to understand that? I don't think, and this is why I said I want you to wrestle with it this week as well, I don't think we can say or that Matthew is saying that Jesus bore our diseases, our sicknesses, in the same way that he bears our sin. Jesus became sin for us, we're told. But he doesn't become a leper. He doesn't become paralysed, does he? And yet Matthew does say here, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. How are we to understand what's happening here and what Matthew is saying? Take it one way, that Jesus has borne all our sicknesses in the same way that he's borne our sin. And then you could say, well, every Christian should be perfectly healthy. And that's how some people want to take it. That's not the truth, is it? Although it could be argued as Christians, we do still battle with the presence of sin, even though he's taken it away. And so perhaps in the same way, we still battle with the presence of sickness and disease. But I'm not convinced we can talk about the penalty and pollution and presence of sickness the same way we do about the penalty, pollution and the presence of sin. Maybe take it another way. Matthew's only talking about sickness that comes as a result of sin. Specific sin means you got sick. Take it that way, and I think you've got pastoral dilemmas more than any of us can imagine, as well as a theological one, which I don't think is consistent with Scripture. Jesus himself says it's not because of this sin or that sin in one situation, doesn't he? We should be very hesitant and cautious if ever trying to connect a person's sin with their health or lack thereof. I do want you to think about this and weigh it up for yourselves and I will tell you how I think or where I've come to for the time being with this and I pray the Lord will reveal it to me and to the rest of us in the days to come if need be. Context is always important isn't it? It's especially important here Matthew's context but also the context in Isaiah. Here in Matthew, we've got the three healings. That's the immediate context, and there's going to be more to come. So it's definitely in the context of the healing ministry of Christ that Matthew says the scripture from Isaiah is fulfilled. But this healing in Matthew's gospel, as we've already heard, is not to be separated from his teaching ministry and the power of his word that comes with authority. Later in Matthew, in chapter 9, we'll hear it in a few weeks, 
Jesus says it's not those who, um, who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. But in the next breath, he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So whilst we shouldn't connect specific sin with specific sickness, Jesus is talking in a way, in metaphors, that sin and sickness are put together one way or another. Matthew's quoting from Isaiah 53, one of the most, probably the most uh, clear and obvious references to the cross in the Old Testament. And so Matthew, the gospel writer, and he's writing after the cross, he's not writing as these events take place, he's writing after they've taken place. In saying that Isaiah 53, 4 is being fulfilled here, he is saying that it takes something of the power of the cross for these healings to take place. What I think he doesn't want us to miss is a bit like what I shared at the beginning, is that when Jesus comes with such power and authority, it's not just wielded willy-nilly and says, oh, away with that, do this, do that. It actually comes at a cost to the one in authority. Isaiah 53, we had it read from the end of chapter 2 into 53, describes the ministry of this suffering servant is one of absolute substitution, one of exchange. He's the burden bearer. He takes our sin. He's the one judged by God for our sin. He suffers the wrath of God so that we might receive mercy. He is forsaken, despised and rejected, defaced, that we might be forgiven and adopted and made new. As one writer puts it, it's an untenable mechanical view to think of a transfer of these diseases to the body of Jesus. Heal a leper, Jesus becomes a leper. Heal a paralytic, Jesus becomes... The old Jewish view imagined that the Messiah would be a leper. No, that's not the case. Just as the sins that Jesus bore on the cross didn't become the sins that he himself had committed, so the diseases that he heals do not become the diseases of his own body. And yet he took and bore them, implying a vicarious ethical assumption of this burden. That is, he did take up and bear the burden. It was an actual removal. And this is a part of the removal of the entire sin burden that was destroying us. You see, Jesus says with just a word, go to the centurion and it will be done as you have asked. Just a word. But with that word comes a burden that Jesus must bear on the cross. We are all, whatever our illness, sickness, whether we're healthy or not, we're all sick with sin. We all need the physician who is Christ. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We all need that healing hand. Not only for our physical troubles, but our spiritual ones. And whilst, as I've said, we shouldn't connect, we should be very careful connecting particular sicknesses with ailments and and sickness. All suffering, personal suffering, suffering out there, the groaning of creation, and death is a result of sin entering the world and the curse that has come because of that sin. And friends, Jesus has borne in his own body 
He became for us sin. He became curse for us. And I wonder, however we understand this passage and what Matthew is saying here when he brings in Isaiah 53, as we recognise the truth that when Jesus has compassion on us, that he really has true compassion. That is the very word, compassion, means to suffer with or to suffer together. He doesn't just fix us. He suffers with us in his compassion. And here is this compassion being exercised in great authority. There's a verse in John 10 that, try to get your minds around this mystery. He says, as the good shepherd, I have authority to lay my life down. You think someone in authority wouldn't have to lay their life down. They should just be able to fix. No, I have authority and he exercises that authority to lay his life down. It's the authority of love. And he has the authority to raise it up. The one who has power over all things, who is Lord of all, empties himself. We heard it a few weeks ago. Became a servant, became obedient, down, down, further down, into our humanity, under our humanity, so that he might lift us up and raise us up, bearing our griefs and our sorrows. I want to finish today. I've been reading a book by Sinclair Ferguson. It was written 30 years ago, so it was a younger Sinclair Ferguson. It's called Deserted by God? So it has a question. And he's going through some psalms and just encouraging us in the truth of God in the psalms. He hasn't forsaken us. But when he writes of Psalm 51 and David's prayer of repentance there, he suggests David scarcely knew what he was asking for. In that psalm, cast me not away from your presence. Have mercy on me, O God. Cleanse me, create in me a new heart. <clears throat> Do we know what we're asking for when we say, Lord, forgive us? And Lord, have mercy. Sinclair Ferguson says, In asking for mercy, you're asking that God will show it to you, but that he will withdraw it from Jesus. In asking to experience God's steadfast love, you're asking that Jesus will feel it has been removed. In asking to taste God's abundant mercy, you're asking him to refuse it to Christ as he dies on the cross. In asking to blot out your transgressions, you're asking that they'll be obliterated by the blood of Jesus. In asking to be washed, you're asking that the filth of your sin will overwhelm Jesus like a flood. In asking to know the joy of salvation, you're asking that Jesus will be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. In asking that your lips will be opened in praise, you're asking that Jesus will be silenced like a sheep before his shearers. In asking that the sacrifice of a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart be acceptable to God, you're asking that Jesus' heart and spirit will be broken. In asking that God will hide his face from your sins, you are asking that he will hide his face from Jesus, his own son. In asking that you will not be cast out of God's presence, you're asking that Jesus will be cast into utter darkness. Now, can we add to that list in asking for healing? 
Are we asking Jesus to bear our griefs and our sorrows, that he might carry in our body the sicknesses and disease, the pain and the anguish of our ailments? As I've said, maybe not in the same way as the rest of those statements, but there's still something of a truth there, isn't there? He has become sin for us. He became cursed for us. Is that what we want, Ferguson probes? Dare we ask God to do this for us? And then he says, we don't need to ask him. He's already done it. He's already done it. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. In Christ he has already done everything that is necessary for our salvations. Our salvation. All we need now is Christ. To know him and receive him. He sees you. And is filled with compassion. Do we see him? Do we see the love of the Father in the Son as he bears our griefs and carries our sorrows? Let's pray. Is it nothing to you or you who pass by? Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me that the Lord afflicted on the day of his fierce anger. Father, it's rare that you or we here make much of the cost that you have borne and your son has borne for us. But when you do, and as we have today, I pray that it would make more of the grace that you so freely and lavishly poured out upon us. And it's good and right to be reminded just what it is and how much that Christ has borne in his body for our sake. Because it shows just what and how much we ourselves have been set free from. The burden of sin and guilt and shame, all the curse and the wrath that Christ bore for us. And the grief and sorrow that he's carried in his body for us. Lord, if you will, you can make us clean. Just say the word. And so, Father, we pray your will be done. Your kingdom come here on earth and here amongst us in our own lives and bodies as it is in heaven. Amen.